to introduce our two, or our three, esteemed guests. And I'll begin with A.J. Bame, um, whose first book, Go Like Hell, Ford, Ferrari, and Their Battle for Speed and Glory. Come on out. No, no. You know, I, I think you just invented a new way for us to do this. I like it. Forgot. All I right. Forgot. Now, next up, Pablo Picasso. Pablo? <laughs> oh, sorry. Just joke. Uh, Bryce Hoffman, everyone. Uh, <laughs> I got four. And finally, the Joan Rivers of the auto industry, Gene Jennings. <laughs> Who dressed you? <laughs> Who dressed you? What are you? Who are you wearing? <laughs> who are you wearing? <laughs> Sorry. Um, as I thank you all for coming out here. Uh, actually, I like this. It's better. We'll take a poll after the show. Um, um, AJ is the author of Arsenal of Democracy. Uh, Bryce, uh, in the um, darker sport coat, is the author of American Icon. He happens to have a copy. It's for sale after the show. Sure. And Gene Jennings is someone whom I, excuse me, whom I first met in 1990 <laughs> on the phone um, as a young writer who'd never been published. And I talked about second chances and first chances. Um, she gave me the chance to write my very first magazine article, which I failed at miserably. And I didn't know if she would remember this moment when we met yesterday for the first time. And she remembered it verbatim. I went home. I had nightmares all night. <laughs> I really couldn't sleep because she said, you're quite amazing. She said, I said that the piece was unacceptable and you argued with me for about a half hour about why I should still buy it from you. <laughs> and and um, I want to thank her for, for two things, both for that moment in 1990 um, when I learned that there was a lot I still had to learn, much like the students who read here tonight. And then for the moment last night, when she honestly um, kind of made it all feel uh, like it had come full circle. And um, I'm a huge fan of what she does uh, um, in, in the world. She founded Automobile Magazine, um, uh, and now is off on her own doing other great things. I think she is going to be the new Anthony Bourdain um, at large in the world. That's my goal. Um, she is pals with these two guys right here, and um, they have written two very distinct but wonderful books that you must buy after the show in the lobby because, one, uh, American Icon has become a Bible for the business community about how to run a great business, and two, AJ's book, Arsenal of Democracy, is, as Gene pointed out, almost an inside look not almost, but it is an inside look at the founding moment in the Ford history when it came together collectively and um, helped save the world, essentially, during World War II. And Bryce's book is about how then Ford saved itself in 2008. Um, thank you for coming tonight. I want to point out that this room has stood here now for a time period spanning three centuries the 19th century, the 20th century, and now the 21st. Wow. This is an amazing place in our downtown, yeah. and it's... it's great. Amazing. 
And as, we, as you listen tonight, reminisce or remember that in this room, you also will hear the voices from those centuries coming back, I think, or at least I do from these walls, and also from the National Writers Series, we've had people like Tom Brokaw on that chair, and Mario Batali, and Peter Matheson recently departed, or Richard Ford, Janet Ivanovich, Anna Quinlan, some 60 plus authors, and it's because of you and you showing up that this has become one of America's um, national book tour stops. So thank you very much, and you, welcome sir. to the fifth season. Good night, and good luck. Great. Good night and good luck. First of all, I want to say that I was not the founder of Automobile Magazine. Rupert Murdoch asked David E. Davis Jr., the editor of Car and Driver, to start the magazine, and he took me with him. I, in turn, never looked back at Car and Driver again. They, in turn, never cleaned their offices again. Okay, so I'm here. This is just amazing, because I don't read history books. I don't. My husband reads those. I don't read them. Big stacks of them everywhere. And uh, I was asked to be part of this because I've been in the automotive journalism profession 34 years. I pretty much bridged the gap they missed. And um, <laughs> I know some dirty little secrets, too. We're going to hear them tonight, I hope. Yeah, <laughs> I think I'm going to get yours. We're going to do their secrets. But I was asked to do that, so of course I had to read the books. So, so I, I she picked makes them it sound up. Like such a chore. I came into the house and I said to my husband, Look, I'm going to read these books. He said, They're on the coffee table, both of them. They're really good. And I couldn't put them down once I started. So I hope this conversation we have will make you all go out there into that lobby and buy these books because I'll tell you, you can't put them down. If you're not interested in cars, you'll be interested in all of the gossip and, and just the shenanigans. They're all about the people. This is America's royalty, the Ford family. And they have been a sine wave, up, down, up, down, all the way from the beginning to where we are now. That's what these two authors did. So I'm going to ask very quickly, AJ, would you please describe your book because it starts at the beginning. Just uh, what, what did you write? What's it about? This is the arsenal of democracy. Before I get there, thank you, everybody. It's such a thrill to be here. I can't see anything because the lights are in my face. Yeah, that's a good thing. But I think there's a lot of people out there. I think so. <laughs> I think. They're up there, too. <laughs> and the fact that there's a lot of people out there means that people still love to read, man. I think yeah, that's yeah, so yeah. awesome. That is um, this is the arsenal of democracy. It took me four and a half years to write. Uh, it's my third book. Um, it's a, if I had to sum it up in a sentence, it's really about how FDR came up with an idea of how to win World War II. We were going to overwhelm the Axis powers with tanks and airplanes. It was going to be a war of production and about how uh, the automobile industry really played the starring role. And from there I get into the Ford family uh, and their role and what they did because it's really the most amazing story um, uh, during the war, to me at least, out of Detroit. So. Okay, and then very quickly, Bryce, would you tell us what your book is about? I would. And first of all, thank you all for coming too. It's really, really appreciated, and I, and I hope that we all entertain you. Uh, my book is American Icon, Alan Mulally and the Fight to Save Ford Motor Company. And as Gene said, this is really the recent history of Ford. My book is about how, during against the backdrop of the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, Ford Motor Company, without taking a government bailout, uh, and without going bankrupt, saved itself and uh, became uh, one of the most profitable automakers in the world. Fantastic. So we have the bookend here. I want to just, just 
kind of ask you a few questions about the writing and why did you do this book, AJ? All those people pretty much are dead. Why it's the funny thing about history. That happens a lot. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I only knew. Uh, this book sort of began, I was writing uh, this book called Go Like Hell, which came out in 2009, and I had this wealth. I was fascinated with this character, Edsel Ford. Um, that would be the, Edsel Ford the first. Edsel Ford the first, who is the Ford. only son, um, technically speaking, of uh, Henry Ford. Uh, you're from Michigan. Nice one. You know it the begins. gossip. You're from Michigan. There, you, maybe you know the gossip. I don't know. But he's the only proven son of Henry Ford. And um, so I had all this material about Edsel. And um, I knew that um, the character Edsel that everybody thinks about, uh, he's, he's often compared to the car, um, which came out in yeah. 1957 and flopped. And it's, it's pretty much the greatest flop in automotive history. And people think of Edsel Ford, and they think of that car. Also, during his life, he was incredibly misunderstood. And I knew him, for my research, to be an extraordinary hero. Um, and so um, I was also very interested, and I really wanted to write about Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt. And I saw that um, Roosevelt's uh, desire to win, his, his idea to win the war, and the epic story of Edsel Ford and his father, Henry, and the way those two stories culminate at the exact same time and sort of meet in the middle. When I figured that out, I knew that I had to, had to write it. So it took four and a half years. A lot of blood, sweat, and tears. So how many actual rubber-made containers do you have, those large ones, of material for this epic story? Let me, let me put it to you this way. There's 41 pages of endnotes here. Right. So every quote, I had to explain where I got it from. And uh, while I was writing the endnotes, it took me months because I, I had papers and books that could literally fill the stage. I remember I was trying to, because I'm not terribly organized. Um, as people point out. But um, I had to find all this material, and there was just so much stuff. I had amassed years of research. And um, uh, actually, while I was writing the endos, I went to the doctor, and he took my blood pressure. And he's like, oh, dude, you need to chill out. But it was that hard, because there was that much stuff, yeah. um, years of it. And now uh, it's still in my bedroom. I don't know what to do with it. I have another point. question, and that is, you know, this, your book reads like a novel, and, you know, what novelistic devices did you use to write this history book? What devices did you use to make it read like a novel? Well, let me say, there's a couple things I can say about that. One is, um, I'm attracted to novelistic stories, and I'm attracted to writing books that fit into that perfect narrative art. This one specifically, actually the last one too, I was really inspired as a kid by John Dos Passos, who wrote um, a book called Manhattan Transfer, and he was really the first guy to go out there and really prove the, 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 how effective it can be to tell numerous stories at once and have them bounce off of each other. And that's, what, that's what's going on here. Um, but I just love narrative arc. I love characters and I love stories that build and build and build and build and they make you want to turn the pages. Mission accomplished, I would say. So thank you. I'm going to ask you the same questions, Bryce. Why did you do, oh wait, I have one more. Who was paying while you were doing all that? I think I might have been the last author to get an advance. I don't know. I mean, I had, I, I had a full-time job. Um, oh, you were still for, for working a good portion, the so whole time, right? There was years of, like, very, very little sleep. When I started the book, I had one kid. When I finished it, I had two. There was just no sleep at all for years. <laughs> but, um, but I will say that um, uh, I'm really attracted to books. N I think that, uh, like, narrative nonfiction that can fit into that fictional narrative art, those stories are so hard to find. 
And when I read Bryce's book, I was like, wow, this, it, it's, it's a very similar book in that it builds and builds and builds, and you just can't stop, even though, um, because I, I, sorry, I write about automobiles and I'm a little bit in the business, I knew Brett, the story of American Icon, and so, but I still, I couldn't stop reading because the story's building and it's just there's more pressure on these characters, and those are the stories that thrill me. And writing is about the story, it really is. These, the, telling a great story will ensure that success. And Bryce, why did you decide to write American Icon? So Gene, I was covering Ford as the Ford Beat reporter for the Detroit News. I started doing that in 2005, which is really kind of the beginning of the, of the events that I chronicle in American Icon. And I knew from literally my first week on the job that, that I was witnessing history being made. And I knew I was gonna write a book about it. I didn't know how that story was gonna end. I didn't know if I was watching the death of an American icon or its resurrection. But I knew that either way it was gonna be a, an amazing story. And so for five years, I, I kept copious notes as part of my day job, you know, uh, chronicling this, this story and, 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 and keeping track of the parts of it that couldn't be told in, in the daily newspaper, if you will. And then I took a year off from the news to write, write the book, and I thought that it was mostly going to be just about putting those notes together and, uh, and writing the book. And uh, it took only one interview um, with uh, Alan Mulally to realize that a huge part of the story had completely been hidden from the press. Um, and that there were some really amazing things that had happened behind the scenes and that I had a lot more work on my hands than I originally planned. So I originally planned to take six months off of my job. I ended up taking a year and, and really having to, to rush at that to do that. Now you had incredible unfettered access to Ford Motor Company and all its executives and all the warts in there were warts. They're like just incredibly warty people there. <laughs> what? What? How did you get that? So in 2010, after Ford had turned the corner, spoiler alert here, um, <laughs> and saved itself, um, I, I approached Bill Ford, who I'd come to know quite well from having covered the company, and I said, look, I'm going to do a book on, on, this, on this past few years here, this amazing story that you guys have all written. And I said, I'd really like you to cooperate with this. I'd like to have access to you and to all of your executives. I'd like to have access to the company records. I'd like to tell the story, warts and all. And I said, I'm gonna do it either way. But I just think that if the whole story is told, it will be so much more powerful. Because, you know, look, I said, you know how it ends. It's gonna be a positive story because you guys saved the company. But let me tell, let me tell the truth. And to his credit, Bill, Bill really got that, and he gave me his blessing um, without any conditions. The only thing that I told Ford was that I would give them a copy a week before it went out to the press so that they could prepare themselves for questions from the media, uh, but that they would have no editorial control, no edi editorial input into the book. And, um, and they gave me everything I needed. I spent the next year, I, I t interviewed over 100 people, mostly Ford executives, labor leaders, factory workers, dealers had access to the company's war rooms, had access to financial records, and really was able to, to put together the, the, the story of what really happened, and it, and it really was a more amazing story than I even knew. In the immortal words of Dr. Gregory House, he just plays one on TV or used to, people lie. Yes, they do. And the beauty of having access to- You didn't have that problem because yours are all dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was- They, they still lied. <laughs> 
They did. <laughs> they still lied. The, the people do lie, and the, and, and the beauty of having access to everybody was, was that I was able to, to go to key moments in this, in this turnaround story, key moments in the Ford saga, and literally speak to every single person who was in the room and say, what really happened? This is what I've heard. Tell me what really happened. And you know, by the time you've talked to everybody who was you know, around the table in the meeting or everybody who was you know, you know, at an offsite or something like that, you really you, know, you do have a sense of who's telling the truth and who's not. And, uh, but that was really the work of, of researching this book. I didn't, I didn't have to go through a lot of, I did not have a bedroom full of, uh, of Tupperware, but what I did do was spend a great deal of time talking to people over and over and calling them back up and saying, look, one more question, and I promise this is the last, even though I told you that three questions ago. You know, when you were talking about, you know, just really minute things, when you were talking about, you know, borrowing $23 billion from the government, did you say? That was minute. <laughs> Borrowing twenty-three billion, very minute yes. detail. Sorry. No, I would. You know, I, I'd say. Did, what was the? Do you recall? Did you say that that you know that we have no choice, or did you say this is a good? You know, I'm just really kind of getting them to think back and uh, put it all together. Tell tell everyone about the day you were going to press, the night before you were handing your book off. <laughs> That's a. I love this one. I, well, I just, we were talking with, with a group of, of students earlier today about the writing process, and one of them asked about, about you know, how do you know that you have your facts right? And, uh, and, and my answer was that, that, that uh, the anxiety of that question kept me up at night to the point that, that literally the night before I sent my manuscript into the publisher, I bolted upright at like three o'clock in the morning having just thought of one thing I hadn't like triple checked and like called at eight in the morning the next morning called Ford and, and had them go over it one more time, go over the numbers one more time, because it was this really arcane bit of, of, of bond finance that I didn't really understand and wanted to make sure I had right, because I was just so terrified that it might not be. And? We fixed it. There was a small <laughs> error. There's nothing like fact checkers. God bless all fact checkers. So off we go, right? We're going to start at the beginning. Um, Henry Ford. He was a genius. He was a flawed genius. But there's no, I mean, it, the things I learned about him in your book were amazing. Um, we know that he was anti-Semitic. We know there was some problems with his um, relationship with the German government at the time. Could you talk a little bit about that? And what we're trying to do here is connect some dots from the beginning to the end and see the things that keep popping up in this, in this long story about America's royalty. Uh, anybody who's read much about the Ford family and Henry Ford, there's been so many books written, uh, like Henry Ford and the Jews, for example, um, uh, knows that Henry was anti-Semitic and that during the, I think it was 1919 to 1921, he purchased a weekly uh, newspaper and there were weekly uh, essays in there that were, when you look at them today, I mean, they're shocking. Um, jazz, Jewish, moron music becomes national music. And it, there was all of this material in there about uh, what was wrong with Jew the Jews and what, you know, and how they were controlling the media and um, what a bad thing that was. Now, um, I, I gave a talk at the 92nd Street Y not so long ago, which is a Jewish organization, and it was very strange to speak about this there because everybody had this very, you know, really strong opinions about Henry Ford and who he was, and 
one of the things I point out in the book, um, and that I think is really important, when you're writing history, it's so important to understand the context uh, of uh, these characters and these events and what people are saying and why they were saying that. And anti-Semitism in the 1920s in America, I mean, it was everywhere. It was in the school books that children read, literally. Um, and I think Henry thought that he was really giving a voice to what a lot of people thought, and he was Henry Ford. He was literally, at the time, the most famous man in the world. And so uh, he was, you know, he had the opportunity, I don't think I'm doing that, to, um, to, uh, to, to deliver this message. Now, um, the book, uh, the articles got put into a book and they were translated to many languages around the world and in the 1920s. Um, this book um, was read avidly in Germany. Uh, and there was a young militant there named Adolf Hitler who picked up the book and he spoke up about it and he, he had a picture of Henry Ford in, in, in his office. And Henry Ford was really Adolf Hitler's hero, not just because he thought of Henry Ford as an anti-Semite, but also because he believed that Henry Ford's vision of what Henry Ford had done in, uh, for the United States of America could be done for Germany. And in fact, that was true because when Hitler took power, the first thing he did was empower the automobile industry. And so it was pretty shocking and amazing to think that during the Great Depression, Germany had a labor um, shortage and that their economy was booming. So, um, but really uh, an incredibly complex character. Henry Ford was a wonderful character to explore because he had all facets of humanity. I mean, he was a genius and he was um, uh, at times a great family man. And I did interviews with people who remembered him and uh, they remembered him extremely fondly, especially because he had a very soft spot for children. And so the people I, I was able to interview who knew him were very young at the time. Um, but um, obviously an extraordinary character to write about. I don't think it's any secret. I mean, to me, the Ford family and the Kennedy family, the most epic stories in those families through the 20th century, it's just, it's hard to believe they have, that their stories are true. They have quite a parallel there. The good, the bad, the ugly, exactly. all of it. He loved his son Edsel so much, his only son Edsel. Well, this to me, this book um, is a lot of things. It functions on many levels. Um, and I really worked hard to make that happen. So it's really a book about World War II and about the FDR administration. But really, when you get down to it, it's about a father and a son and a grandson, Henry Ford II, because Edsel Ford dies during, during the story in 1943. But I think that they had um, an extraordinary relationship that I really took home and I thought so much about me and myself as a father. I have a son and my own father. And these two men, uh, they really butted heads because Edsel was not the child that, that Henry wanted him to be, but they loved each other so deeply, and they, they just they, their relationship suffered. But I think they both suffered so deeply. So you describe what kind of person Edsel was compared to what kind of person Henry was. Well, Henry was um, he was the star of the show, without a doubt. Edsel Ford, I think, is so extremely misunderstood. To me, he was way ahead of his time, extraordinarily sophisticated, and he existed in a world that didn't exist around him yet. And it was only after he was dead that people looked, and only the people really close to him who looked around and saw, wow, this guy really knew what was going on. And when you go back and read, he was very press shy, which I think was another problem, because he was, you know, he was the president of Ford Motor Company for more than half of his life. But he hated giving interviews. He hated um, being the center of attention. I think that was a problem for him. Do you think that was caused by his father belittling him? I mean, shouting at him in front of all the executives and... I'll tell you exactly, exactly what it would cause. There was a, there's a poignant point early in this book where Edsel was born. He's the only child, the richest, most famous man in the world. 
He loves his father. His father loves him. He's going to, he has this whole world created for him. And everybody, there were literally people naming their sons Edsel Ford. There was an Edsel Ford born in Michigan, in Indiana, in Louisiana, because he was the child that everybody wanted to be. Now, during World War I, Edsel was forbidden from his father for serve, from serving in the military. So at, at a very tender age, he was brutally maligned in the world's newspapers, brutally. Um, and he realized at the time that um, it, it was not going to be as easy as he thought it was to be Edsel Ford. And somehow he prevailed. There are so many superlatives that I, I just I couldn't take them all in. The superlatives that uh, of Ford and Detroit, that you know they that Henry Ford was the beginning of the industrial age. That he just talk talk about just the high points of Henry Ford's life. They're amazing. They're amazing. Um, I think it's really because of Henry Ford that Americans throughout the world, I mean, it's been, the Model T spread the, the gospel of the new machine age everywhere. Um, and and um, Henry really was the reason, I think, that the United States considered itself at the forefront of, the, of nations in this new machine age. Um, you can think of what this man did, the Model T, uh, the $5 day, and it would take hours to explain, you know, why the $5 day was so incredibly important. Bryce does a little of that in his book. Um, it created the middle class. It, right, it created, created the industrial middle, middle class yes. that, that, that made America what it is today. Gave the first generation of black Americans, black Americans the ability to send that first generation of kids to college, become doctors and lawyers. This is Ford. Ford did that. There's a scene in this book where um, Henry takes this guy named, I think his name is William Perry, brings him into the assembly line and goes to a foreman and says, give this man a job. And he was an African-American man, and that had never happened. And everybody, and all of a sudden, there was this huge mass exodus of African-Americans from the South all coming to Detroit to get a job at Henry, Henry Ford's. Um, ultimately, the, the, um, the uh, what was the word you used uh, the most, the, the superlative. Your superlatives, the, you know, the, the one largest, I'm getting, this, I, the biggest ever. The I mean, one I get to, the, the superlative that, to me, it really ultimately happens is, not Henry's um, accomplishment, it's Edsel Ford's. It's As Edsel Ford is dying during World War II, he, and he um, begins this um, experiment to try to build the biggest aviation factory in the world to build these bombers for the, for the American uh, military. The biggest, the fat, talk about superlatives, the biggest, the fastest, and the most destructive bomber in our arsenal at the time because it was before the B-29 and turn that into the most mass-produced military aircraft, American military aircraft of all time, and it still is. The B-24 Liberator is today the most mass-produced American military aircraft. In the largest factory in the world, and the, it, and it, it's amazing. It's just amazing, it's amazing that he did that in Willow Run. And, you know, we'll just kind of skip forward to that, that, that time, unless you'd like to talk a little bit about uh, President Roosevelt and his, his relationship with the family. Um, okay. <laughs> Henry Ford and, and FDR, they really hated each other. I, f I, I spent a lot of time going through FDR's files, and I found this, this, this handwritten note from um, FDR to Henry Morgenthau saying, if Henry will just call me on the phone, you know, everything will be okay. We'll get through this. But Henry hated him. And when, um, when they, because he was such an iconoclast and such a, Henry Ford, such an individualist, he did not take kindly to people like FDR telling him how to run his business. So when the two men actually met, it made the cover of Newsweek. It was 1938, and it showed a, there was a piece, it looked like a piece of paper ripped in half with Henry Ford on one side and Roosevelt on the other. And um, uh, 
even after that, they, they continued, they hated each other even more. But after, this is one thing this book is very much about, is patriotism, because after World War II, they be, really became allies in, in the cause. They pretty much had to. You know, um, when they had, when they, Rosie the Riveter was someone at the Willow Run factory who was working on the Liberators. And it, it brings up how many women, that's the only thing Henry Ford did, not Henry, Edsel, the Ford Motor Company did, was for the first time really liberate women's uh, from the home and gave them the ability to go to work and have a job and make money and show how good they were at that. But it wasn't just women. At one point, I think 30% of the factory force were women. But he also, um, as you said, hired a lot of African Americans. Pacific. He hired dwarfs. I thought they that was the most amazing. Tell me about that. Well, during the war, there was such a labor shortage. Um, so they could not get people to run these machines to build this Liberator bomber. So uh, it wasn't just Ford. I mean, that basically, the, you know, the FDR administration and Eleanor Roosevelt was such, a, was such a force behind this to get women into the factories. And we all know what happened next. But uh, the, the character of Rosie the Riveter, you know, she, she was based on this woman named Rose Monroe. She was actually based on a number of different women, but it began with Rose Monroe, who was a riveter at the Willow Run factory. And yes, during the war, they wanted to make use of any labor they could find. So here was a liberator where they had to have um, people climb inside a wing and use rivets, so they hired dwarves. They had epileptics, they had blind people. If you could walk, they found you a job. Something that struck Jeff, me as amazing. Blind, legless people, armless people. Absolutely. Amazing. Um, they had people coming there and showing up from the south who had never worn shoes. And they showed up at this factory and uh, uh, to, you know, they wanted to work and they wanted to serve and mostly they wanted to be able to make money and, and support themselves. They had never worn shoes in their lives because Ford had sent, the labor shortage was so extreme, the Ford Motor Company sent buses sweeping through the south, filled them up with people who had never been out of their hometown and drove them to, to, uh, to Dearborn. So how was Edsel's relationship with his own sons? Um, I think he shielded... I'm sorry, not Edsel. How, yes, exactly. That was the right question. How was Edsel's relationship with his own sons, Henry Ford II and Benson, who you don't really mention very much, and William Clay? Um, to me, one of the reasons I loved Edsel as a character is because he cared for his sons so deeply. And his life was extremely stressful, and the weight on him was extreme. And he would come home. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever been to, the, to Gawkler Point, this beautiful mansion out there in Gross Point where you can go. And uh, it's a museum now, and it's just an extraordinary place. But it has these huge uh, uh, security gates, these big walls. And, and he would go in there, and his, uh, once he crossed those walls, you know, his life was about being a father. And in the book, Henry Ford II is the one I really bring to life because... He was, the one, he was the oldest, and he was the one who was going to have to take over the battle for Edsel, and that's, that's what happened. But one of the, in my research of him, that was one of the things that touched me the most, is how much he cared for his kids. And, um, he let them go to war. Yeah, he let Henry Well, Ford he let them in war. the military. They never, they okay, were, they never served the overseas. Um, but that, that's also a big scene in the book where he has to confront the idea that he, his kids are going to join the military and, and go off, and he had to let them do that because of what had happened to him um, during World War I. It's amazing. You know, Edsel was only five foot four, and Henry Ford was almost twice as big as that, at least in our history. I don't mean literally, I mean. 
He wasn't 10 feet tall, but he was a really tall guy. He was, like, in terms of what he was in the room, he was 10 feet tall. He was. And I think Etzel saw it, he was diminutive in many ways. But he, as an executive, I just think he was really much more than that. He called Henry, he called Edsel for daddy. You know, they called him daddy. And I thought that was really interesting. When Henry Ford II died, I sent Edsel a note, Edsel Ford II, and he sent me back a note where he talked about daddy and missing daddy, and I thought that was really interesting. I just, you know. That's amazing that you picked up on that because that was one of those little, in writing I feel like it's the little details that can really illuminate a whole character, a whole scene. And that was something that struck me so moving. It was, wasn't it? I, I read that note like a little they called, him, they called him daddy um, as adults, as grown-ups mm -hmm. they did. So I don't call my father daddy. I, I, you I, talked I, about Franklin Roosevelt spraying, you know, sinus spray in his nose. And, Right before he gave a speech. It's those details. Because I, I like to try it's to like, put the. Did you make that up? And how did you know he sprayed sinus spray in his nose? I can tell you exactly where I got See? that fact. That Who fact, does this? That fact came from um, No Ordinary Time, that brilliant book that won the Pulitzer Prize. Right. Yeah. 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 I don't make it up. It's 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 nonfiction. So what do you think? Um, how did? Henry Ford died, how, how, what was he like when he died? Was he a bitter man? Was he, you know, he had, we were pretty sure he had dementia pretty much by then. I think um, by the time the war came, he was not all there. And um, I don't know if he was a bitter man. I th uh, it's, it's hard to say. But I know that when his son died, he was in a position to really look at himself in a different way. Maybe I'll read it later, but he actually wrote a poem about his son called What is a Boy? It's so moving. Um, so, but he still couldn't understand. When you read the dialogue, he, he has this crony named Harry Bennett. Maybe somebody know, you know, people in Michigan oh. might know who Harry Bennett is. He's this gangster, and it was Henry Ford's best friend. And he, conf you know, he went to Harry Bennett when Etzel died, and he's like, Harry, was I, was I mean to Etzel? Was I unfair to Etzel? You know, he, he still didn't understand. He couldn't get it. You know, we know about Harry Bennett just peripherally that he was, uh, he was a thug, he was his henchman, and he brought in a lot of people as a security force and was part of the Battle of the Overpass where it, they were up against the Union. But it was way worse than I ever thought or knew. There were, he had a thousand thugs working for him, mafiosi thugs. Uh, Harry Bennett was this character who Henry Ford hired um, to police his factories. And he became, he built, Harry Bennett built something called the Service Department, which was, at the time, the largest private police force in the world. It was made up of these thugs, literally, ex-boxers. He would hire, uh, you know, at the, after the University of Michigan class, the football team, after they graduated, he would just hire the whole football team and bring them in and have them beat up people. <laughs> and there are these amazing, amazing oral stories. histories. Amazing. If anybody ever wants, go to the Benson Ford Research Center. Anybody here, in fact, some of them are up or online now. You can read these oral histories of people who worked there at the time describing these events and these people, and they're just extraordinary. And what, again, back to what we were talking about, what, you know, what is a fact and what isn't? You read these oral histories, and they're all, they, they all talk about Harry Bennett because he was so powerful. I mean, he was the second most powerful. He was more powerful than Etzel. In fact, the first line in Harry Bennett's memoir is, I was uh, Henry Ford's closest confidant, closer to him even than his only son. And to write about this character, I mean, he was, he was a gangster. He was a killer. Really amazing. And how did he go down in flames? 
Um, one of the reasons I knew I wanted to write this book is because there's, a, there's this whole thing of good and evil in this book. It's, it's within the Ford family. To me, it's very Shakespearean. And good wins in the end, as we want it to. That, that, that's what makes a good book. Um, but um, uh, what struck me is that there was this power struggle of good and evil inside the Ford Empire. And that power struggle, good defeated evil, and that happened at the exact same time of D-Day as Ford was building, you know, becoming this important thing in, in FDR's arsenal of democracy. So you could tell the s stories at the same time, which was just what this Spectacular. book. Spectacular. And there's more. You're going to want to buy this book in the lobby. Did I say you can buy it in the lobby? So we're going to, I think we're going to jump ahead now to Bryce, where all the people are alive. And how in God's name did you get that access again? What? How did you get access in there? I can't believe that they let you in because the thing that starts in the past that carried through to when you were a journalist, you can correct me with, if I'm wrong, of course I'm not. There were about a half a dozen top executives at Ford and they were, I described them as the Medici's meet the Machiavelli's or the Borgias, the Borgias, really. These were, this, this culture went all the way back, all the way back in this top level of people that, I mean, Henry Ford had no control over Harry Bennett. Nobody had control over him. And, and nobody could stop these Ford executives in my day from just stabbing each other in the back at any chance to kill or be killed, eat or be eaten. We had guys from America hiding in Europe, guys from Europe hiding in America. All of them just, you know, they'd take each other out, right? Didn't you, did you notice that? I did, gee. <laughs> <laughs> now that you mention it. Yeah, um, forgotten that, right? <laughs> no, it, it's true, and, and, and Ford really, I mean, it, you, you can't overstate how dysfunctional Ford's corporate culture was, and it really does go back, you know, I, as I put it in my book, these were really birth defects that go back to the company's founding with Henry Ford. If you look at, there, there's some really big points that begin all the way back there that continued to the present day that, that really kept the company from solving its own problems, getting out of its own way. One was the over-reliance on one leader. You know, first it was Henry Ford, then it was Hank the Deuce. You know, at different points it was different people. But, but there was never a culture of building a team at the top of the company. It was always one man, you know, who by the force of his will... And um, name on the building. Yes. Uh, was, was getting things done. There was an over-reliance on one product. You know, in the beginning it was the Model T, then it was the Model A. You know, ultimately it would become other cars, but, but the company never, never really diversified its product line up the way that General Motors or Chrysler did. You know, there was, there was, there was always this dark and sinister side of the company, mm. you know, that started with, with Harry Bennett, but continued right up until till today, you know, to the modern times before Alan Mulally was hired, Bill Ford, you know, talks openly about the fact that, that, that when he was CEO of the company, his, his car was bugged and, uh, you know, by other Ford executives who were trying to figure out what was going on. And didn't Harry Bennett have Edsel Ford the first? His office bugged by yeah, his I mean, own people. Yeah, the same things happened over and over again. And, and, and nobody could kind of crack through this. People tried, you know, I, you know uh, when, when Henry Ford II came in, and, 
he tried to, t to make Ford a modern company, but he ultimately succumbed to the same culture that, that, that his grandfather had created. And uh, the, you know, fast forward to 2001, when Bill Ford Jr., uh, Henry Ford's great-grandson, famously ousted Jack Nasser and took control of the company, which was being run into the ground by Jack. So let um, me just interrupt yes. you right there and say, so it was Henry Ford I, Edsel Ford, Henry Ford II, Billy. What happened to Edsel Ford? Edsel Ford was working for the company in Australia. He was in marketing, very successful. He was deeply ingrained. And I, in Billy, in my estimation, was he was running the, like he's on the board of the Nature Conservancy. He was building fly rods. And, uh, and he was like in the papers every day shown training with the lions. And all I could think of was, if, would you want somebody managing the lions, managing your car company? I think not. So what did you encounter? I mean, what, talk about that. Why Billy and not Edsel? Well, I didn't really get into that much. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the... But you know. <laughs> <laughs> the Ford family has always, has always tried to present a united front to the world. And they have always, in each generation, picked one person to kind of be the public face for the family. And there was a time when it was very much up into the air, whether that was going to be Edsel II or, 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 or Bill Ford Jr. And in the end, Bill Ford became the... They have votes, front. don't they? They do. They have family They're probably meetings. not equal. Quarter, they have a, they have a family meeting uh, usually four times a year, and uh, and and you know Bill Bill was selected to be this generation's leader, and he came mm -hmm. on as chairman. They they knew he didn't have a lot of business experience, so they thought well the the solution is we'll pair him with someone who does have a lot of business experience. So they found Jack Nasser, and 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 Jack uh, was this this really rising star, very tough as nails executive in Ford in Ford Motor Company. They thought we'll make Ed's, we'll we'll make uh, Jack CEO and Bill chairman. Well, you know this 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 was right before the end of the 1990s, and 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 the way that I think it characterize it is is Jack Nasser came in, opened the hood, and looked at what was going on inside the engine that was Ford Motor Company, slammed it shut, and decided to go and invest in dot coms and, uh, and technology Jaguar companies. And Jaguar and Aston and yeah. I mean, he, he, he did not know how to fix Ford, and so rather than trying to fix Ford, he went off and did all of these other things, and in the process, really alienated Ford's dealers, Ford's suppliers, Ford's employees, and the journalist. company. Journalists. like Gene. And, uh, not me. I was a sucker. <laughs> and, was, and was really running the company into the ground, and Bill, you know, to his credit, you know, said, I'm not going to sit by and watch my family's legacy, you know, torn up by this guy. And, and he, he led a boardroom coup that ousted, ousted Nasser. Then he tried to tackle these same problems. And he did not have much better luck than, Ed's, than, than, than Jack had had. He, 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 tr he tried to get the company to build, you know, green cars and hybrids because he wasn't an environmentalist. But, you know, they were making all of their money off of big trucks and SUVs. So they kind of said, that's nice, Bill, you know. Um, We'll, we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. And no one would give him a straight answer. And you know, fast forward to, to 2006, people didn't know it at the time, but Ford, Ford was, was running out of money to the point that very secretly, at the insistence of the board, they had set up a, a, a board level committee to look at what worst case scenario options. They were looking at parting the company out to private equity firms, and they were looking at bankruptcy. And while this was happening, 
Bill was desperately trying to recruit one of the rock stars of the automobile industry to, to lead his company. First, he went after Carlos Ghosn, who was the, the, the CEO of not just Nissan, but also Francis Renault at the same time. He thought he could handle a third company, maybe. Um, he wanted nothing to do with it. He said, I will come to work for Ford if the Ford family gives up control of the company. Um, he went after Dieter Zetsche, Dr. Z. Remember Dr. Z? Uh, who was running Chrysler for Mercedes and uh, starring in their commercials with his white mustache. And, uh, and same thing, he said, uh, nine, 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 nine. <laughs> um, he went after Wolfgang Bernhard, who was about to become the, the head of, of Volkswagen. Same thing, he turned him down. And, and he literally had gone down the list of people that could help him save his company, and they had all turned him down. Thank goodness. <laughs> and because, yes, thank goodness, because then, then came the real epiphany, which was to bring someone from outside of the automobile And industry. not just outside of the automobile industry, outside the insulated enclaves where the automotive executives lived. So, it, you know, it, it, the jet, we know where the General, for, the General Motors people live. They live in Bloomfield Hills, and then they, they live in uh, Naples, and they, a lot of those people live in Naples, and Hilton Head, mostly Hilton Head. I think they're all hiding down there during this latest crisis, um, the ones who have retired, knock on the door down there, they're not answering. We know where the Ford executives live at Gross Point, and they would only be with each other, drink with each other, party with each other, know each other's children, go to the same schools. They weren't, they weren't even diversifying where they lived except for Lutz. Yeah, so, so, so Bill and, Bill's board, the, the Ford board, recommends this guy, Alan Mulally who no one had heard of outside of the kind of upper echelons of American business, but people in that world had heard a lot of him because he was the president of Boeing's commercial aviation group. And he was already being credited with saving Boeing, another iconic American company, from not just one near-death experience, but two. He, Boeing, when he took over as head of their commercial aviation division, was, was, was you know, losing a, a decades-long fight with Airbus um, and that no one thought it could win. He turned things around, got Airbus against the ropes, and then when that happened, 9-11 happened, and all of the world's uh, airlines basically canceled their orders for new planes within 24 hours, and Boeing's order book was like gone overnight. Everyone thought, oh my gosh, you know, what, nothing can be done to save Boeing. Allen led this amazing restructuring of Boeing, got huge concessions from the, their unions, and managed to keep Boeing in the air and also make it profitable again. So, so the Ford board and Bill said, well, here is a guy who has been through the fire, who has, who has done it, who has turned around a failing company and, and has done it successfully. He called, he called Alan. He had Alan flown to his house in Ann Arbor. And the two of them sat together one-on-one -on -one, and had a really frank conversation. And during that conversation, Bill told Alan about Ford's culture. He told him about the history stretching back you know, to his great-grandfather, and he told him about all of the things that he had tried to do to break through this just ossified corporate culture and how, how he hadn't been able to do it. And uh, he, he said, you know, I want you to know what you're getting into. And amazingly enough, after all of that, Alan Mulally still agreed to take the job. They didn't give Alan Mulally the top job at Boeing when it came loose. So. That was Ford's gain. I, I'm Ford's sure gain. that had some bearing on that at the time. Yeah, Boeing had been in the midst of a, Boeing has two, two sides to Boeing. There's the commercial aviation side of the Boeing and there's the 
the military side of Boeing, as Alan likes to put it, the guys who can kill you in the dark with a knife. Um, and That's just like Ford executives at <laughs> the time. <laughs> so he felt right at home. Amazing. The parallels and, and that side of Boeing had, had been in the midst of a very high-profile scandal with the Pentagon. And the Pentagon, um, not being particularly creative, uh, their solution was, the only way we can keep working with you is if you find a CEO who has never worked for your company before. And so Alan, another, who most people thought... Another one. Yeah. So, so most people thought that, that Alan had earned the, the right to, to become CEO and, and instead he was passed over. To the point, by the way, that, that, that when he was hired in the fall of 2006, one of my first calls was to the head of the, the machinist union, which was Boeing's biggest union, and I wanted to get their take on this new guy who was going to be running Ford. And the head, of the head of the machinist union starts telling me, oh my gosh, he came at us with a bloody axe. This bastard, he, you know, he cut. There's nothing left of us. And, and he's going and he's getting all worked up. And he's like, and it's a goddamn shame they passed him over for CEO. That is a crime. And that is a crime. And yeah. I went, wait, wait, wait. What did I just miss here? Wait, the bloody axe, uh, the bastard. And now, wait. And he said, he said, well, none of my members would have had any jobs right now if it wasn't for Alan. So, you know, that's the type of guy he was, and that's the type of guy he is. I always thought of him as a smiley freight train from Kansas because, you know, that's how his presentation to everyone, including all his executives. And he used that to his advantage, too. You know, I mean, one, of my, one of my favorite stories that I learned when I was working on this book was his first meeting with Rick Wagner. That's a beautiful story. <laughs> So special. You know, as Gene said, you know, I, I, I call I, I refer to, to Alan as a latter day Richie Cunningham. He has the, he looks not dissimilar and uh, has the same kind of aw shucks grin all the time on his face. And uh, he, you know, people were making a lot of jokes at his expense right off the bat, you know, like who Ford has hired this aerospace engineer to lead their yeah, company. Yeah, what does a guy who builds airplanes know about building a car? There are a lot of parts in a car. You know, people at GM in particular <laughs> were... Screw up an airplane, <laughs> right? I, that was the first question I got asked on television, like the morning later, and I went, are you serious? <laughs> really? Yeah, and people at GM were like, you know, what is Ford's secret plan? Are they going to finally build flying cars to save the company? You know, is, are they going to bring back tail fins Let's and stuff? And so, yeah, exactly. Let's go have martinis. So, so Alan, you know, Alan's laughing along with them, you know, because the joke's on them, right? And he called, you know, Rick Wagner calls to introduce himself, and, and Alan says, you know, oh, wow, Mr. Wagner, head of GM, <laughs> boy, I'd sure appreciate it if I could come over and meet you because I don't know anything about the automobile industry as y'all pointing out. And uh, I'd love to hear from you <laughs> all about this wonderful yeah. industry that I know nothing about. And so Rick was like, oh, of course, please come down to the Ren Sen and I will be happy to instruct you. And uh, by the time Alan left, he had half of GM's product plan. <laughs> Believable. Unbelievable. More, more about Alan. This is, you know, I heard that one of the early meetings where he had to, he had to get rid of this culture. He had to work with this culture. And uh, someone who was at one of the first meetings, a vice president, called me, of course, and said, oh, you will not believe this. So we have the CFO, Don LeClaire. We have the president of the Americas, Mark Fields, and they are going at it, hammering tongs. And they've already heard the speeches from Alan. You could talk about how he presented it to them. And he said, at one point, Alan stopped all smiling, and he said, hey, you guys, 
did we agree that we could disagree and like be polite and still be friends? Because if you can't, I'll find two guys that can. And he said it was just like ice went down. <laughs> I asked uh, the next CFO, I said, you know, everybody thinks he's like this real sweetheart. He's always smiling. He's crazy nice. And I said, does he have balls? And this British CFO, which you describe in your book as being kind of short and dumpy little guy, this like little you know accountant, and he goes. British. So he looks at me, and he says, "Great steely balls." <laughs> <laughs> that's what it took. And that's what it took. And, but and that's Alan. You know, Alan. Alan is the proverbial iron fist in the velvet glove. You know, he never stopped smiling, but but. It was to your peril to think that he was this this this, this uh, you know farm boy from Kansas. But it wasn't ever a knife in the back with him. No. Everything was up front. Everything How did he get front. rid of some of those people? Well, he you know it's interesting because before he even started, I talked about this meeting that he had uh, with Ford's board before he accepted the job. And they said the first thing they said to him was, you know, Alan, you know, Bill's name is on the side of the building, but uh, you know, if you need to be chairman. Two, to get this done, just say the word and, you know, you can have both jobs. And Alan said, no, you know, someone's got to manage the Ford family, which is kind of like herding <laughs> cats. Um, and he said, also, I don't know the unions. And from what I'm learning, Bill is very respected by the unions, which he is. And uh, they said, well, okay, that's fine. They said, you know, but uh, you can uh, get rid of anybody you want to. You know, you can have carte blanche to get rid of anybody you want to from this company. And uh, Alan said, I, that's great, I appreciate that, but I really won't need to do that. He said, because the system that I use to manage things, it's, I call it working together, and I'm just going to invite them all to, to join the team. And if they don't want to join the team, they'll self-select out of the company. And that's exactly what happened. The, you know, I, I remember uh, you know, right after Alan was hired, you know, we, it didn't take but a few weeks for us all in the media to say, you know, when are you going to start cleaning house? When are you going to start, when are the heads going to start rolling? And Alan was really dismayed at these questions he, because he said, look, Ford has the talent it needs to save itself. I'm just here to bring that talent out. I, I don't need to do that. And, and that's really one of the most amazing things about the Ford turnaround story is that Alan did all of this largely with the team that, that was in place that was responsible for, 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 for the mess, that, the fine mess that, he, that they had gotten themselves into. They're and apparently then, raised by wolves, and he just had to instill some manners and good behavior. And he, would, and he made it safe for them to deliver the bad news, which they'd never felt safe before. And I know where our time is like rolling. Aren't these guys great? They're just amazing. Oh, my God. Thank you, Jim. And I, I know, I'm just going to ask you two more, I think, key points. And one, if you can be brief about the, the system he installed to make it safe for them, because this is pretty funny, and it deals with someone who was, we all in the press knew he was going to be out that door in a second. Would you sure. talk about that? Yeah, so, so the way that, that Alan made everyone work well and play well together uh, was with a management system that he had developed at Boeing, and it's a really simple system. You basically, it's you, you instead of getting bogged down and blaming each other for who's responsible for the company's problems and, and never getting anything done, that everyone on his senior leadership team every week would come together for two hours. They'd each have five minutes to go over, set a slide showing their part of the company, how it was doing against the plan, and everything would be either red if there was a problem, yellow if there was a concern, or green if it was on plan. He explained the, this to them. He gave them some sample slides from Boeing. He said, this is how we're going to run Ford. 
The next week, they all came to, to the first meeting. They all went through their slides, and everything was green. <laughs> so Alan said, well, maybe I didn't explain it well enough. So he said, let me, let, okay, let's do this again. So green means everything's okay. <laughs> Yellow means you have a concern. And red means there's a problem. Next week, everything was still green. Alan said, okay, maybe I'll speak slowly this time. <laughs> he explained it again. The next week, everything was still green. He, he just stopped the meeting. He just stopped the meeting. He said, guys, we're about to lose $12.5 billion. Is there nothing that is not going right at this company? Or is this the plan? Is this green? Are we planning on going out of business? And he was just met with silence, because at the old Ford, you would never be honest. You would never admit that you had a problem. And so Mark Fields, uh, the, who is then the president of Ford's America's group, uh, who, as Gene points out, was you know, pretty much thought he was going to be fired anyways, and most people did too, since he was viewed as next in line for CEO. He said, you know what, I'm going to go out. If I'm going to go out, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. And I'm going to go out as the guy who calls this guy's bluff, because nobody believed Alan really meant it. So he knew there was a problem. He knew there was a problem with the launch of the Ford Edge, which was about to be introduced to the market. Very important new vehicle for the company. And uh, so he changed his slides. He, and the next week he got up and he said, as you can all see right here, the uh, Ford Edge is red. The whole room was dead silent. <laughs> and I talked to everybody, every single man and woman who was around that table, and they all told me the same thing. I was sure that Mark Fields had just fired himself from Ford Motor Company. But instead, Alan started clapping. He's like, this is great, Mark. Wow, this is great visibility. Who can help Mark with this issue? And then, of course, they all started tripping over each other to offer their assistance. The, you know, the head of purchasing said, well, let me call the supplier of the assembly you know, components that, that are, you know, and everyone was, was trying to, to, to outdo each other and offering their help to Mark rather than stabbing a knife in his back. And when they saw that Mark didn't lose his job because of that, then, as Alan put it to me, he said, Bryce, it was like a beautiful rainbow. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the moment, as, dis as distressing as it was, when, as, as another executive who was there told me, he says, there was so much red on that, it looked like a CSI episode. Um, he said, I thought I stumbled into a murder scene. Uh, but Alan said, you know, that was the moment I knew I could save the company. Because they finally were, I finally had it all, all out on the table. They were finally telling me what they had never for decades said, which was what the problems were. And once they were out on the table for everyone to see, then we could just get to the business of fixing them. We're going to go into Q&A, and I think what you want to ask Bryce, <laughs> <laughs> so that I don't just sit here and you know, keep talking. I think you have things to ask him. I'm sure you do. But the key point would be, you know, how did he... How did they, 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 they mortgaged the whole company. How did that happen? How did they make it through to the point where they didn't take the money? And even my old aunts who lived down south knew within days that they didn't take the money. And I think one of the things that saved him, but going to Congress, what was that all about? You know, how did he really, how did they make it through? But um, you can either, I could either ask that for you. Do you want him to answer that? Do you want to ask your own questions or, you know, a little show of hands? Do you want him to answer that? Oh, yeah. Do that. Okay. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. You've all magically There's appeared. a lot of people here. Wow. wow. Hi. Look at their people all the way up there. So to, to answer Gene's question, 
You know, this, this really, I mean, to me, this is one of the most heroic moments in, in the history of American business because, you know, cast yourself at this point, it's 2008, that the banking crisis has happened, the housing crisis has happened, the U.S. economy has collapsed, and the automobile market in the United States is worse than it's been since the Great Depression. And in the midst of this, Ford and the other three automakers go to Washington and ask for a bailout. And you all remember what happened, right, when they flew on, the, on their corporate jets to ask for a bailout? It didn't go well. You know, the GM PR guy begged Rick Wagner not to do it. So on the way back on his corporate jet from, 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 uh, from this trip, Alan Mulally you know, was really upset. He told me this was the worst day of my life. But it wasn't the worst day of his life because the men and women of Congress had been you know, sitting up there pounding the big three for all of their decades-long mistakes. He said he got that. What really upset him was that at this point, Ford was two years into its turnaround, and before the bottom fell out of the market, it, had, it was back, it was making money again, everything was going great. And he said, you know, Bryce, I felt like, I felt like the only sober guy in a group of drunks, and everyone thought I was an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and it, it just really bothered him that, that most people looked at all three companies as just Detroit, one giant stumbling dinosaur that couldn't you know, save itself. So he said, I need to do something to show people we're different. And the next day, he had one of his meetings, and he had his executive team there. And he said, look, I want you all to think about this before you answer. What if we didn't take the bailout? What if, we, what if we told the American people, thank you, we appreciate it, but we got this. We're gonna fix our problems ourselves. We know we made mistakes. We know how to solve them, and we, we're gonna do it. Everyone who was at that meeting told me that their first reaction was, okay, the boss has gone crazy. Because, because, because Uncle Sam had his checkbook open, and all he wanted to know was how many zeros to write. And they knew that once that checkbook closed, it was never going to be opened again. And at this point, Ford knew that it had enough money to last five months. That in five months, the company was going to be out of cash. And so with that knowledge, with that certain knowledge that they had five months cash left, they decided to not take the bailout. And to survive without the bailout, they had to literally they, they fired the company that watered the house plants in their office buildings. They sent people around unscrewing every other light bulb in every building. They crammed people's desks together on floors so they could shut down whole floors of office buildings to save on heat. They stopped plowing the snow except for the main entrances of buildings. That's how it took a vice president's signature to order a box of paper clips. Seriously. But Alan was right. Like Gene said, within a week, Within one week of Ford withdrawing its request for a bailout, 98.5% of the people in the United States of America knew that Ford had done this. And Ford's favorable rating amongst consumers swung to its highest level in the past 50 years. And people started buying Fords again, too, even though they weren't really in a buying mood. And they made it through until the market turned. And they ultimately, within two years after having been on the verge of bankruptcy, became one of the most profitable automakers in the world. God bless Alan Mulally. So I think um, there are, we have a microphone, at least one. Do we have one, two, and they will come to you. I'm not pointing at anyone. Well, there's one up on the top, if anybody up there, there's a, a 
Microphone up there, too. Here we go. We have somebody right here. Bryce? Okay. We'll go second. Bryce? Yes. Um, in your book, uh, Rick Wagner really kind of comes off as a doofus. And I just wondered, after, uh, I'm sure he read your book, did you ever get a call from him? You know, the, to the best of my knowledge, Rick Wagner has not spoken to anyone since uh, President Obama fired him. Uh, uh, pretty but, much true. Yeah, he yeah. disappeared right off the face of the planet. You know, I know, I know that, that, that there's, I mean, in all seriousness, you know, Bill Ford, I know, tried to call him, you know, multiple times after that happened and, and just kind of, you know, tell him, thank him for his, his years of work for the auto industry. And uh, Rick has kind of uh, gone off into the sunset with, with several tens of millions of dollars, though, so don't feel too bad. <laughs> if you could tell us your name. Yeah, my name is John. Um, Mark Fields. Yes. He came from inside. Yes. Did Alan Mulally live in a good enough shape? Does he get it? You know, it's interesting because Gene and I were talking about this before, and we both have known Mark for many years. Gene better than I, I do. She, she had I lunch had with his mother. I had contentious relationships with him for several years. It was so bad that they sick, he sicked the PR guy on me. He would say, you know, Mark's a great guy. I go, I don't think so. And, the, and this is the early years, and they sent him to Mazda to run sales, and then he became head of Mazda. And it was bad, it was bad. I finally had to take him to dinner against my will, and I didn't like him any better. And uh, <laughs> he had a mullet, that was okay, I didn't care about that. And, uh, and you know, but um, finally he called me and he said, I really want you to meet my mom. Desperation. And I said, this is good, this is going to be really good, because you always need column fodder when you write a regular column. When things don't happen, it's pretty desperate. I'm thinking, this is going to be a column. And it was. But His you know, mom was unbelievable. I watched him turn into, I watched him drop in age all the way down oh. to about 15 years old by the time we left. And it was, it was something to see. And I, I liked him a lot better because I liked his mom so much. Turned out he was the youngest of three, so he's all three boys, so he's always in competition. And in that culture, he was very young. He was in his 30s. Yeah, and he, you know, he, I, I met Mark, uh, literally, I started covering Ford right when he was brought back to the United States to become head of Ford's America's group. And, and I was not favorably impressed. I, 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 Arrogant. My, my two-word description of him was bada boom, bada bang. <laughs> um, He's from New Jersey. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, Mark... Uh, so what? <laughs> Bill Ford told Mark... Bill, you know, Mark called Bill Ford the day Alan was hired, and, you know, it was not a pretty conversation. You know, he had been promised that he would be the next CEO of Ford, and he was ready to leave. And Bill told Mark, he said, you know, look, I can't make you a great CEO. This guy can if you give him a chance, he can make you a great CEO. And to Mark's credit, he was finally able to, to, to check his ego, and he became Alan's, you know, kind of keenest student. And uh, there's a reason why he's now the CEO of the company. I just talked with a friend of mine who's a, who's a senior executive at the company who um, is no personal ally of Mark's uh, day before yesterday, and he told me he's doing a phenomenal job. He says it's just like Alan never left. So time will tell, yeah. but I think that, you know, Alan has given Ford the tools it needs to be successful. He gave Boeing the tools that needed to be successful too, and they decided not to use them, but um, we'll see. 
We'll see. And if you want the tools, <laughs> you can hire Bryce as your consultant because he picked up a lot. We have a question up in the balcony. My question is to anyone or to all, what's the skinny on the Edsel? I was a young man at the time and I thought it was a wonderful car. Yeah, Can I say now to about most this? people, it's the answer on a crossroad puzzle for the clue failed car. I wrote a story about this for the Wall Street Journal recently because I write this, uh, a column every week about interesting people who have interesting cars. And um, I went out, I wanted to write an Edsel story and I went out looking for someone who owned one and uh, was passionate about it. And so I started posting in chat groups and the, the response was amazing. The, the number of people that wanted to, to reach out because they own them, because they love them. Now this is a hilarious car. I mean, we all know, we remember the comparisons of the car, you know, that the grill looked like a toilet seat or, you know, a certain female organ, sorry. <laughs> but um, it was, it, it, this was a, a car that was brutally maligned, but um, I was surprised by the number of people who love that automobile. I don't know, maybe somebody here owns one, any Edsel owners over there? There was, there was a great book, a great insider automobile industry book about uh, the PR person who was in charge of the launch of that automobile when it folded. He wrote a book. Did you guys ever read that one? He wrote a book about the launch and the failure because it only was 1957 to 1960. But I can't wait. I myself want to buy one of those cars. I can't wait to drive it down the street just because I think it's so cool. Okay, then. I've got another question back here in the corner, over here. I'm Bill. Uh, thank you very much. I'd like to know what y'all think are the most significant issues and trends in the American auto industry we should be looking for over the next five, ten years. Well, I think, I, I think that the, the, they, the, they're all being driven by the same thing, Bill, which is, which is the, the, the increasingly stringent federal fuel mm -hmm. economy standards. That's really changing and is going to continue to change the shape of the cars you and I drive going forward. You're going to see things like more electrification. You're going to see things like lighter vehicles and use of more lightweight materials like aluminum. Um, you're going to see smaller engines. You're going to see all of these things because that's the only way that the automakers can comply with these these fuel economy Which are coming down from Europe in uh, 15, 2015, I think, is that the beginning of it? First ones, and then in Washington. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and they're going to have, to, you know, it's a world economy now. These cars are now world cars. They're coming everywhere, so you have to meet all these regulations. But in addition to that is the safety technology. It is remarkable. And my day, I used to own a taxi cab. And I was changing flat tires, you know, about once every two weeks and, and doing points, plugs, condensers. I did all the work myself. And the first big revolution was radial tires. Suddenly nobody's getting flat tires unless you hit something, right? And then after that, it became miniaturization of, of the electronics. And then one black box. And then it really is electronics and GPS. With that, with that, 360 degrees of safety technology, we have the ability to, I mean, we have self-driving cars. They can, it's there. It can happen, but now it's just a matter of legislation. That will be really very, very huge. It will we be have, huge. We have another question in the balcony. Um, I love the arsenal of democracy. And Bryce, I'm reading your book now, too. So, All right. Um, but, <laughs> Did you have, Thank you. I've, got, I've got two questions. One is, did you have any idea 
the convergence of forces that were happening, it, it reads better than fiction. Um, it, from the race riots, to anti-Semitism, to, to labor, to, to the conflict between the Fords, and then you bring in FDR, and it's just amazing how you tied it all together. Did you have any idea when you were starting the book how all those were gonna come head to head at the same time? Um, firstly, let me say that it took so long to write the book, and there was so much, I mean, I can't, it's very hard to explain the, the process and the joy and the absolute horror of trying to complete something like that. So when somebody says that to me, I like, I melt. And so I really, I really appreciate it and thank you. Um, the, uh, I realized that the, I, there was a eureka moment. Both of my books, the last two books that I've written, there was a eureka moment where, I, where the light bulb went off and I was like, wow, that's the book, I got it. And it was that moment when I realized that that inner struggle, the power struggle of Ford Motor Company, specifically with Harry, Harry Bennett and the dark side and the, and the good side of, of Ford, that that, that that battle was happening during World War II when FDR was uh, trying to create the arsenal of democracy. Now, I remember listening to the speech. I wish I could play it right now, actually. I should play it on my phone, but it, because it's so moving. And when I realized that people still refer sometimes to Detroit as the arsenal of democracy, that's when it all came together, and, and I saw it. Um, and then four years went by, and, and um, but, uh, so the answer is yes, like I never put my, wrote a word until I had visualized that that was happening. Thank you, it's very good. Um, and growing up in the city of Detroit, I never realized what happened during World War II. You know, I was, uh, it, you know, my father was in the automotive, uh, the whole thing, but I had no idea how pivotal the city of Detroit was. So you, I think you've done a big service for the city of Detroit to let people know what it did. Um, so thank Absolutely. you. Thank you. I kind of got a lump. I got a little lump. I got a lump. I was born in I Detroit. I don't, I don't mean to be a hog here, but here's the other thing: is that um, did you? He doesn't um, care. I don't. Yeah. So, could you lay out for folks how unprepared the United States was, and at the beginning of World War II, and how audacious it was for the Fords to come along and say, "We're going to build a plane an hour." Um, it, it's amazing to realize. Amazing to realize even six months after Pearl Harbor, the degree to which we were underdogs in this war. Um, even myself, I mean, I knew when I started, I knew the story of the war, and there's probably a lot of people in this room, maybe some people who can remember. I know my father tells amazing stories about the war, but even when I, the more research I did specifically to read the correspondence, and it still exists, you can go to the FDR library and pick up those pieces of paper with FDR's handwriting to read the correspondence back and forth between Winston Churchill and, and FDR. You know, they knew they were losing, that we were losing. Um, and everything was really about, you know, that, the arsenal of democracy. There was the strategy by which we were going to win. But of course, everything was going wrong. Um, one of the things I, I write about here in, is the degree to which things went wrong in Detroit before they went right. I mean, um, and with Ford. I mean, it was essentially a disaster. It was a real disaster. And to read the news articles at the time and see the pictures um, and the infighting. Um, and really, this book is about how they turned it, you know, again, how everything was going wrong, just like in Bryce's book, and how these characters came up with these ideas to make it right. Um, that, that's the story. 
and it's really a story of heroes. Any great story is a story about um, ordinary people put in these you know, very extraordinary situations, and that's the case with all these guys, even FDR. But um, I don't know, I hope that answered your question. It's, it's something absurd. I mean, I would, I would take up a lot of time by looking up the, num the a number, and depending on um, where you look, the number was different. But the fact is, we had gotten going a lot of planes, um, but the ones that we had were obsolete, and the ones that were not obs obsolete, we couldn't mass produce them because they, all we had was prototypes. So for example, the B-24, Ford set out to build a B-24 an hour. They didn't even have a factory. There's a scene in here where they go out, and there's literally Charlie Sorensen waves his hand, he says, I'm going to put up a mild factory here, and there's an orchard there. There's an orchard in a field in a boys' camp, and they're going to take the biggest, fastest, most destructive bomber in our arsenal and make one an hour? I mean, it's really hard to believe that that, that happened. Now, one thing you said that um, if, if, for people who grew up in Detroit and didn't realize the, the, the role that Detroit played during the war, it strikes me as amazing that, that Willow Run is getting knocked down right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a good portion of that museum uh, that's going to be a factory that's going to become a museum, a very important museum. And, um, but it strikes me as amazing the number of people who don't realize the importance of that building is the, the, the people who are trying to drum up money to turn that little piece and save a piece of that factory to make a World War II museum. And the, the struggles they get because people don't know what Willow Run is. It's amazing. It's a place where GM built transmissions. Later. Later. I know. I'm saying this is the last thing. Oh, it I really see what you're did. saying. Like that's what people think this of. This is a place where GM built transmissions. You know, it's it's amazing. So I also like the scene with when the D-Day scene. It was like the third book of the Lord of the Rings, where it's like the <laughs> War of the Worlds, the book you don't want to read, driving across the Great Plains with a storm coming. That is the scene there, and it is the most stirring. I think I wept through that whole, that whole scene with the waves of those liberators coming through, and it was really, really something. Eisenhower, in his memoirs, wrote about looking around and seeing all this, you know, these destroyed tanks and, and cars on, on the beach. And he says, that's when I realized like, essentially how we won the war and what America had done to win the war because to any other nation, just to see all that des destroyed machinery, that would be it. That would have been the end of, of, of uh, you know, D-Day right there. But we had just more waves of airplanes and, and tanks. and it's, it, yeah. Also that every company that made stuff, washing machine companies and refrigerator companies. Pinball, were, coffin were makers. All there. And I mean, people that had nothing to do with machines were every, what was, who was making the, the ammo? Who was making the rounds of ammo? Well, everybody was, but Oldsmobile had, had made millions of rounds of ammo. There's one scene in here where, where um, the head of the Cadillac factory, he was recruiting people off the street, bums off the street of Detroit, and teaching them using films how to make these complex gyroscopes for, for bomb sites. What about the prostitutes? Well, that was, that, that's who it was. He hired recruiting. all these prostitutes off the street and brought them into the factory he to did. work on the line. And you know what was, what was shocking to me is that the response to that. People were more upset that they were African Americans than that they were upset that they were prostitutes. The days were amazing. It's important to tell those stories. And you used the words, you used all the bad words that, you know, you made it. Very real. And, well, you know, and when I used the bad words, um, I only used the bad words when other people had uttered them. 
because well, I think I it was that. important to illustrate. <laughs> like the, there's a whole chapter in the Detroit, the Detroit race riot in 1943, and I would never use the words in my own language that. But when I was quoting the hatred of white people for blacks and blacks for white people, the hatred among these people, and the, what amazing. they were calling each other, and um, yeah, it's amazing. We've, it's important to tell the story. Yeah. We've got time for one or two more questions. I think we have one over here. Gene uh, mentioned the global nature of the of the business, and it clearly is. Do you anticipate, with your vast knowledge of the company, of Ford ever getting into Formula One racing? Ah. I, I wish, I wish. I, 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 I was on Alan's case to, uh, many times to get back into, back into Formula One because Ford has a great and, and, and some would say glorious history in Formula One, I believe second only to Ferrari, right? Yes, well, um, I, I, I've been writing a lot about this, actually thinking a lot about it, and it's been a long time since Americans have had a presence in Formula One. This is the pinnacle of motorsport, and it, and it really bugs me that we don't. Now, Gene Haas is, is launching a team, and he's going to have a new team in, in 2016. We don't know. Actually, he partnered with. Where is he going to get his Ferrari. engines from? They're not going to be American-made. They're going to be made by Ferrari. Yeah. Uh, the last uh, American driver in Formula One is Scott Speed, and uh, he didn't make it. And that was in uh, 2007. He was replaced on the team by Sebastian Vettel. But if we follow racing, we know what happened next. But it bugs me. It bugs me that America does not have a presence in Formula One. Question. I, I agree that history is real important, and I think that it's uh, something that's really missing in public education. Do you guys have any intention, and perhaps you already have got this in the plans, of making audiobooks uh, from your, your books? I think they'd be more acceptable to kids. I know that my, my books have uh, been available as an audiobook since it came out. My book is it's, uh, just coming out in audiobook very soon. Um, I'm glad that you said that because I, um, so a lot of people have come up to me and, and told me that they, look, that they think that teenage kids should read this, um, which I thought to me was just a terrific compliment. But, um, but yes, I think, uh, yeah. Is there a better order to read your books? I mean, I'm sure they're both good standalone, but if you're going to read both and you haven't read either, would one Whatever works for you. <laughs> We're just happy that you're reading them. Bryce, um, I'm just wondering what ever happened to the, the other option for CEO of the company. Is he still with them? I know he was, he was on the... Who are, who are you speaking of? Uh, Mark Fields. He's now the CEO of the company. The guy who was on the block. Not Mark Fields, but, oh. but the other. There was two guys being considered at... Farley, yeah. Uh, well, as I, as, as I talk about in my book, um, Jim, Jim is, is, is a very brilliant guy, and he, he is, a, is a marketing savant, and Alan had high hopes at one point when he recruited him from Toyota um, to be the next CEO, but um, there was kind of consensus that he was not uh, really suited for that role. But he's still the head of marketing for Ford. There, yeah, there were a couple other people too, Jim Hendricks, obvious, or Joe, Joe Hendricks, Hendricks rather, and um, and even Lewis. But you know, he even laughed at that. Joe, Joe is 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 you know very clearly kind of next in line mm -hmm. after Mark. He's a lot younger. Um, but but that's the amazing thing about Ford before Malali to Ford today is because we can have a conversation about who else could run Ford Motor Company inside Ford Motor Company, 
Believe me, in 2006, there wasn't a conversation to have. There was consensus that there was not a single person inside that entire company <laughs> that couldn't leave the company. Suddenly there were four company. or five. Yeah, and now there's like, well, what about him? What about her? What, you know? and, and that's an amazing transformation, isn't it, in the space of just a few years to go from having no bench at all to having literally candidates to choose from? And he specifically did that. He realized that he had some real talented people and put in place a retention plan for all yeah. of it. And the most amazing thing is when one got chosen, the rest of them still work there. Yeah. This is you know? what you've just witnessed here is history in the making beyond just the saving of Ford Motor Company. What you've just witnessed two months ago is the first orderly transition of power that's ever happened in the automobile industry in this country. <laughs> really. No big I mean, churn. <laughs> if you look at the history, you know, if you look at the history that AJ writes about and that others have written about. People did not go quietly into that good night. <laughs> well, Bob Lutz didn't either. No, no none of know. them did. And, 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 and more often than not, you know, people, people left with a bullet in their head or a boot in their behind. It got violent. Yeah. And so what we've just seen here is stunning in its, in its lack of being stunning, that, that one CEO <laughs> passes the baton to another CEO and they shake hands and everybody leaves as friends and nobody quits and throws a hissy fit or jumps off the 12th floor because of it. It's an amazing thing. We have time for one question from a young viewer here. Uh, what was Henry Ford's uh, relationship with his grandkids? Interesting question. Very interesting question. That was good. Yeah. Um, I think that Henry Ford was a man, and this my interviews um, uh, support this. That he was um, th there was there was this duality in him. There was a dark person, and there was a visionary, and there was, a, there was a, a human being, and then there was a machine. And even in his old age, young people brought out the brightness in him. And um, when his grandkids were young, he loved having taught, the, the scenes where he taught his grandson, Henry Ford II, to drive a car. And they went driving around the streets of Detroit. And you can imagine this, you know, for young Henry, he's like scared, he's driving, and he's got his famous grandfather. He had this uh, ritual at the house where they built this little place um, for a Christmas tradition, and he would have real reindeer for his grandkids. How cool is that? I wish I had it. And um, not only that, um, he, here was a man who, who uh, got very upset if people tinkered with the machine, if you messed up the machine and it didn't work properly. But those grandkids were allowed to run around the Rouge and dump out the, cat, the money and drive the trains all around. And um, I think it would have been extremely fun to be his grandson, but not much so much his son. <laughs> it's funny, Edsel had some similar recollections of his grandfather Edsel and his grandmother Eleanor, and he said that it was the, the most incredible time of his life when he didn't feel, as a kid, like he was so protected you know, by private schools and nannies and all this because he would go there and he had a go-kart there, they had a go-kart for him, and he would race around that whole estate on the go-kart, and his grandma would come out and chastise him because he had woken her up from her nap. Uh. But that same kind of just wonderful relationship from kids to the grandparents is really, those are nice stories that make you feel like maybe they are normal Good in question. a lot of ways. Thank you all. Is this on, Joe? Thank you. Yeah. yeah.